Friends, our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. Hear the word of God. Now, every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up, as usual, for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you with great anxiety. He said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. This is the word of the Lord. It's amazing, isn't it, how great joy turns to great anxiety? It's been less than a week since we heard the angels sing good news of great joy to herald the Messiah's birth. I hope that you were able to bask in that joy for at least a day or two. But if you ended up putting in even one day at the office, or if your Christmas plans included, say, a road trip with your whole family, or if you just so happened to glance at a newspaper or at your news feed, you know that joy is hard to hold on to. There's a moment, or maybe there have been a few, where you find yourself aware that God's promises are still in process and it's going to take time. We do, we come down from Christmas more quickly than we would like. Life goes on. It certainly did for Mary and Joseph. The shepherds retreated to the hills, the angels fluttered back up into the clouds, and life's ordinary rhythm returned. Each week brought its work. Each Sabbath brought rest, and every year they would make that customary trip to Jerusalem for the Passover. It was 90 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem. These days you might make the trip in a two-row SUV with a five-star safety rating. In those days, though, traveling with a large group 
was actually the best way to ensure safety, to travel with your family and with your friends. And having company would help to pass the time on the road. You might even sing together the words of Psalm 122, which Logan just read for us. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. When reading this story, I think it is tempting for us to really focus in on this idea that Mary and Joseph were somehow irresponsible, that they lost Jesus. But for their time and their context, they were making a pretty normal assumption about Jesus' whereabouts. Kids were supposed to stay with the group. They knew that. Adults were supposed to look after the kids, even kids who weren't their own. They knew that. So Mary and Joseph were really doing what good practical parents were supposed to do. They were adulting. <laughs> That's internet speak for doing grown-up things and holding responsibilities such as a nine-to-five job, a mortgage or rent, a car payment. Adulting is the once-a-week trip to HEB even when it's going to be crowded. Adulting is vacuuming more than I vacuum. Adulting is exercising and eating right and taking medications as prescribed to you, Sudafed in my case. Adulting is everything that sets grown-ups apart from kids. But perhaps because they had been so busy adulting, Mary and Joseph had missed something that Jesus was growing up too. Twelve years had gone by, and Jesus was not a little kid anymore. He could think for himself. He could choose for himself. And he had these amazing gifts that could no longer be kept under wraps. Jesus was ready to take his first steps across the threshold into adulthood. And by the end of his family's week in Jerusalem, he had figured out how and where to do it. I don't think Jesus meant to upset his parents, for him, Jerusalem at Passover was simply the right place and the right time. As I've studied and spent time with this text over the past few days, I keep thinking about the movie Goodwill Hunting. The main character, Will, is an undiscovered genius from the wrong side of Boston. Will is pure potential, but he had a rough childhood, and as a young man, he just can't stay out of trouble. If you remember the film, it's actually Will's parole officer that gets him a job cleaning floors at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT. It's a last-ditch effort to help Will go straight. And that's where Will begins to be tugged, not only away from crime, but toward his true calling. To the students and professors, he's a nobody, just as a Nazarene boy would have been a nobody among the scribes and the Pharisees. But at night, as he walks the shadowy hallways of the school, Will notices near impossible math problems left on the chalkboards by the professors. And he puts down his broom, picks up his chalk, and works them out. It's not Will's job, but it is his calling. And once the conditions are right, right place, right time, there's just no denying it. This moment in the temple for Jesus 
is that kind of moment. A star is born. But Mary and Joseph are not about to jump up and cheer. For them, three days of searching for their son had been an excruciating nightmare. You can hear the desperation in Mary's voice. Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your dad, your dad and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. The emotion is intense. But Jesus does not apologize. Jesus justifies the same actions that have caused his parents so much pain. Mom, Dad, I was where I needed to be. I was in my father's house. That part can also be translated, I was going about my father's business. Jesus was busy doing the things of God. But that was not something Mary and Joseph could understand. It's as if they were seeing and feeling for the first time how unconventional and unpredictable it was going to be to parent the Savior of the world. You think they might have known after Jesus' miraculous conception and all those angel visits. But no, Mary and Joseph... They still wanted the routine of the days and the years. Somehow, they were still hoping that it would be a normal life. Or Joseph, Joseph would teach Jesus all he needed to know about the Torah. That was a father's job. And Jesus' trade would be carpentry, not teaching, right? It was silly for Jesus to be bothering these temple teachers, wasn't it? Mary and Joseph were in a state of denial. But once they had left, with Jesus in tow, Mary kept mulling it over. Luke tells us that just like the shepherd's visit years before, this was a memory that Mary would come to treasure in her heart. She treasured it in her heart. Though the event was fearful and confusing, Mary found something true and good to cherish. But the gospel writer does not get any more specific than that, and so we are left to find for ourselves what good news might be hidden here. There is so much that we celebrate at Christmas time. We celebrate the mystery of incarnation, that God would become a human being so completely embodied as to share our joy and to suffer our pain. We celebrate the start to Jesus' remarkable life on earth, teaching people, healing the sick, casting out evil, even raising the dead. And amidst the struggles of our lives today, we remember that Jesus has promised to return and to bring his kingdom of justice and peace to completion. Those are what you might call the broad strokes of the Christmas message. But friends, underneath them all, underneath them all is the bright canvas of God's freedom. And that freedom 
is really central to this story. God is free. Just as this child was able to go on his own out of his parents' sight and far beyond their expectations, God is not bound by us. God is free. God is on the loose. God is on the loose in cities we love and on the streets we never travel. God is on the loose in living rooms where laughter rises up. And God is on the loose in dying rooms where voices are hushed. God is on the loose in the secret hearts of our friends and in the secret hearts of our enemies. God is always and already moving, purposeful and courageous as this child who clamors up the stairs to the temple. This is what the theologian Karl Barth called the dispossessive nature of God's revelation to human beings. Dispossessive. God cannot be possessed. God cannot be taken under our control or our management. God is free. If you're anything like me, God's radical freedom may not strike you right away as good news. I want order, and I want the feeling of being settled. I want progress in a world where every day and every way it's getting better and better. I want my carefully worded prayers to come true, like wishes. I want to know God is on my side and not on theirs. To tell the truth, I have wanted God to be small and obliging and subject to me. God's freedom, then, it's frustrating and it's frightening until I remember that its purpose is and always has been and always will be love. In Bart's words, God is the one who loves in freedom. God is the one who loves in freedom. Scripture insists time and again that of all the things God could do, God's choice is to love. As I read this story, I think it's no small thing that after this dramatic day, Jesus willingly and obediently followed his parents back home. How great was his power, even at that young age. How great was his freedom. But Jesus would surrender all of that for love, for the love of well-meaning, worrying grown-ups like Mary and Joseph and you and me. And finally, Jesus would surrender it for the love of the world that all might have life and have it abundantly. That is gospel truth. But it's a truth we're still learning. It's a truth we're still learning. We're turning it over and over in our minds and our hearts like Mary. We are still learning to set our anxieties and expectations aside and to hear despite these distractions, 
the voice of God. The voice of God that speaks love and abundant life over us. I love how the poet Mary Carr imagines that voice and our resistance to it. These are her words. 90% of what's wrong with you could be cured with a hot bath, says God, from the bowels of the subway. But we want magic to win the lottery we never bought a ticket for. Tenderly the monks chant, embrace the suffering. The voice of God does not pander, offers no five-year plan, no long-term solution, nary an edict. The voice of God is small and fond and local. Don't look for your initials in the geese honking overhead or to see through the glass even darkly. God's voice says the most obvious stuff. Put down that gun. You need a sandwich. Yeah, it's humorous. But friends, I leave it with you today because there's something really true about it. The simple kindness of God's love. Can you imagine a God who would draw you a bath or make you a sandwich? A God who in your moments of deep pain and anxiety might be kinder to you than you are to yourself. That's our God. God, the one who loves in freedom, liberally, unabashedly, tenderly. God knows our weaknesses, that we would rather have success than suffering, that we would rather have certainty than faith, that we would rather have a solid set of rules than, than this impossible gospel that we've been given. But God loves us in any way. God loves us like an infant who clings to your finger, like a child who looks back just to see if you'll follow him, like a man who kneels down to wash your feet. God loves us anyway and keeps inviting us into the life that really is life, where grace overflows. Amen.